the digital transition. Digital Transition, a podcast series created to assist those tasked with implementing digital strategies, where we will share our knowledge and experiences to support you in your transition. Welcome to the Digital Transition. This year, we're powered by Bond University's Building Information Modeling Program. I'm your host, Nathan Hildebrand, and today I'm talking with Alan Patching, who is the Director of Industry Engagement from Bond University. Now, we are here today in a unique studio uh, we're actually on stage at Built ANZ 2022 on the Gold Coast and uh, we're here to discuss a topic that I know both of us are very passionate about and that's BIM education in Australia. But before I start my interview with Alan, I'm really excited to announce a new exclusive sponsorship um, partnership that we have formed with the Digital Transition with Bond University this year. Now, just to learn a little bit about Bond University, Bond University are leading the way in BIM education in Australia through their Master of Building Information Modelling and Integrated Project Delivery course. Now, they also offer um, micro-credential offerings as well for those that don't want that full course offering. These courses were the first and remain the only university courses to be formally accredited by Building Smart Australasia. And... These were recognised uh, internationally with a special mention for leadership in open BIM in education in the professional research category in the 2020 Building Smart International Awards. Now, for me personally, I think this is a really great partnership because the purpose of this podcast is to provide, I guess what I'd call it, informal education and learning about BIM and Bond University now through their courses and their BIM courses that they have as offerings provide that formal uh, education that you may be seeking to advance your career or to assist you in your role that you perform. But to learn more about Bond University's um, offerings, please head to the website uh, via the link in the show notes to learn more about their educational offerings. So thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us today, Alan. Thanks for having us along. Now, Alan, for those that aren't aware of who you are, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Background started in uh, quantity surveying. I did uh, undergrad work in um, quantity surveying and construction practice, I guess. And I did a postgrad. I was working with the government at the time, and towards the end of that, I did a postgrad in um, in, in America in uh, project management. I was working in the government project management side of things, mainly in scheduling at the time, and I eventually left and started a company called RCP in Brisbane, which is quite well known. Russ Martoo runs it at the moment. In fact, we're about to celebrate the one year late because of COVID, the 40th birthday of RCP. From there, uh, I went on to work for Kumagai, a big Japanese company, as a national projects director. Had a lot of projects in trouble, so we, uh, my role was to sort those out. And included in that lot was the building uh, of the Bond building in uh, Sydney, uh, which became renamed Chifley Tower, and that was going on down there at the same time as Bond Uni was getting built up here, strangely enough. After that, I took a role at the Olympics as the CEO of the company that owned the Sydney Olympic Stadium and um, also as project director in charge of design and construction from the owner's side. When that finished, I came up here at the request of uh, the government to work on Suncorp, 
And around that time, I transitioned into the university and I've been at the university since. Uh, in between those two things, after the Olympics, I had no more hair to pull out, so I decided I needed to uh, think about a different role. I, you know, one Olympics is enough for anybody, trust me. Um, so I finished off some study I'd started earlier, psych-related stuff. I did a master's degree in psychotherapy and counselling and I actually moved and practised in that field for probably 12 or 15 years overlapping the Olympics and beyond. And then I eventually did my PhD joining those two things together and investigated stress in construction and what causes it and uh, why is it such a toxic aspect of our culture often goes um, unreported. So that was, um, I guess, the overview of what I'm doing. And the BIM just came as part of my role at Bond. We were looking at it and among a few of us, we had the idea that maybe we should do a postgrad certificate in it and maybe we should do it differently. And differently meant talking to industry about what was required rather than us as an education institution dictating what should be required. So that's from scratch through till now, I guess. It's interesting because of the diversity of your roles that you've played throughout your career. It's kind of uh, somewhat of a person that loves education in some ways. It's because you're wanting to constantly learn. You've been adapted yourself constantly throughout your career. Mm. Now, moving into your role uh, at Bond University, we won't specifically talk about the role you have at Bond University, but more so what role do you see that Bond University plays currently within industry as an education provider. So what opportunities does Bond University provide for, let's say, the AECO industry? It, Bond University in itself is huge, mm. but let's just narrow it down to the areas that would be of interest to the people that listen to the podcast. We're not as huge as you might think. Uh, we're a large private university, but we're only, you know, 5,000 is the cap on students and we're currently about 4,300. So we're quite a small university and very intimate and private, which is why we are so well known because of the low number of students per teacher and the personalised service you get out of that. I guess my own education experience was all about sitting down reading a book in a class for three hours and being bored stupid and that's definitely not the Bond way of doing things. If we look at the broader subjects they, you know, across the whole university, they're obviously relevant to the individual disciplines they're trying to prepare people for. But in construction in particular, we're trying to prepare people for such a broad number of applications with so few subjects that are allowed in one or two degrees that it becomes quite difficult and we've got to stay on top of it. And I think the BIM came out of that because just about every other university that I'm aware of, when they educate on BIM, they educate by having a subject, maybe two, on BIM-related topics within their degree and typically within an undergrad degree. And we thought we'd get a bit bold on that because we think it needs more than that. Now, you talk about education in this field, maybe not even BIM-specific, but let's get BIM-specific uh, because that's relative to the industry in a way that I'm really passionate about. If you look at the people in this room, just about everybody in this room today doesn't need to be here. Most of the people who need to be here aren't here, yep. which is why it's such a great idea that you've decided to record this as a podcast so they'll hear it. And I'm not trying to insult anybody, but if you ask even the most experienced practitioners today and ask them what BIM is, for the most part they're going to say it's Revit and either a cost module or Revit and another module, maybe scheduling module. Very few understand the integrated brace of disciplines or subdisciplines that make up BIM. So here we are 
with the banks going crazy in Australia in regard to environmental stuff, and they are starting to. They're starting to say, we want ESG reports before you start getting funding. I gave advice to someone recently, 0.02% reduction in interest rate, which was half a million dollars on the job, if they had an ESG report done. The United Nations 2030 thing is only seven years away in exactly a month. You know, this is the kind of crazy stuff that's happening and yet how many people are using BIM for their environmental design and design of the power consumption and things within the universities? How many people, oh, sorry, within their design teams, how many people even know you can do that? So there's a general ignorance about what BIM can do and how relevant it is to other pressing forces that are going to dictate what designers and contractors and developers have to do in the not too distant future. If the government really pushes ahead with its 2023 intentions, BIM will need to be required on pretty much every project going forward. And one, because the government's asking for it, two, because the nature of our evolving society and the pressure for environmental objectives, uh, you know, the 17 goals and 169 objectives of the United Nations, a lot of those relate to the building industry in a very strong and powerful way and not just design and building but the operational phase as well. So BIM, we can talk about it a little bit in more depth later, I think is going to be the catalyst to a major change in construction. What worries me is that I don't think too many people realise just what a big change it's going to be a catalyst for. And so you get the very well-educated who are up with it and they're leaders in their field, and thank God a lot of them are teaching for us. Um, but there's so many people who need to have the education to be able to meet the demands that are kind of come on hard and fast, particularly with the Olympics approaching. But not even that. You know, to me, the Olympics is just a stepping stone. Um, we're going to double the population of this place between now and 2050, that's the Gold Coast and Brisbane. And at the same time, we're going to spend $62 billion, according to the government, on green energy, sustainable energy up and down the coast. I mean, to even think that we can approach the challenges of the future without having an integrated set of BIM skills and discipline is just, to me, the greatest oversight or disrespect of the need for education that I've seen in my career, I believe. Yeah, it's important that you say that because... Just recently, last year, the AACA, so it's the Accreditation Board for Professional Architects across Australia, they updated their whole competency skills and I took the effort to go and take the ACIF APCC BIM Knowledge and Skills Framework and map it against the competency skills of the old framework and said, this is what you need to consider with the new one. And what we found was is that they completely ignored that suggestion and the focus was on sustainability and First Nations people. Now, there's no, I've got no issue with that, which is, it touches back on the importance that you talk about with sustainability. Ironically, BIM actually helps solve that problem. Then we have designing in consideration for First Nations people. How, how would we communicate to them? I don't have a problem at all is making things bigger than BIM. I'm not suggesting no. that at all. What I'm suggesting is that BIM can be the catalyst to include whatever you want mm. to include, but... If we look at just learning Revit and Costex and maybe some other BIM-related scheduling synchro or something like this, but we don't look at the environmental controls and we don't look at the asset management aspects of BIM, 
we are missing the opportunity to be leaders in delivering in other demands and those other demands are the environmental demands, the embedded we talk about embedded carbon in building. You hear about till the cows go. I don't know how many times I've heard people say we're going to close down the coal industry and the oil and gas. That's just nonsense. It's never going to happen. We're going to need roads and we're going to need tar to make roads. It's just that we'll be making those products far more efficiently. Notwithstanding that as a sideline, every building we make has to be operationally efficient. And yep. You know, that involves the energy design that also involves the asset management and yet most of the buildings happening in Australia today are still happening with the asset managers not even being involved until the thing's finished commissioned and handed over or resold somewhere along the line. There's something wrong about that. And I have a view about the way forward where BIM and Lean and IPD getting people together early um, is the catalyst to overcoming a lot of our problems but there's a barrier to it and that barrier is what I call a cultural problem and the cultural problem exists with the attitude of owners and builders regarding risk distribution and profit and things like that. But uh, that's probably a better answer for a question going down. <laughs> well, it, it, it's, it's a tough one because the, the whole thing comes back to education, right? As much as it's a cultural issue, it's an education one and it starts with the universities and now the universities are in a tough spot, right, because you have to meet certain conditions to actually get your course accredited, right? So for a university course, you guys have to meet the highest standard. And even even through where I went through university and studied my architecture degree, they have, you know, as you said, these little snippets of, of embracing technology and processes to assist in, you know, learning design and how you can, you know, how you show design. From your view, and I know you did a lot of research when you set up your master's course at Bond. Do you do find through that research that there were many universities actually implementing this well? Was any is there anyone that's actually doing it, or are we so far behind with this that you know, as you said, you got all these people that could we could deliver these better as a team, but the reason we're not delivering is because no one really is thinking about it. It's an interesting question. I only know of one other university, the University of Western Australia, who's got a full BIM Masters and that seems to me, um, I might be doing them a disservice here and if I am I apologise, but it seems to be focused more on the architectural design side of BIM. So when we went about it, I did, by that stage I'd been converted to be an academic, so I started off with a review of the literature on what was happening around the world. And some of the most recent literature, I forget when we did it, I think it was about 2016 we kicked off, when we looked at the literature, the most recent stuff was like around 2011. And basically the big debate amongst those who had already done it, two big points came through. One, there should be a combination of engineering, architecture and construction methodologies into any course that does it so people get the experience of working together at university. That was an excellent suggestion. We don't have an engineering school, so we couldn't go with that, but we are getting an increasing interaction between the architects and the construction people doing BIM. So that, that's something we're following. The second thing that came through is that doing BIM alone was overlooking the opportunity to benefit from some of the things that make BIM work better and BIM makes them work better. And the two that came through was what was called alliance contracting in Australia, but the Americans took it and turned it into IPD and now we call it IPD as well. But on major projects in particular, an IPD approach and certainly a lean construction approach. And that's why we included aspects of that in the course. But I think the biggest thing we did was to go beyond the academic understanding of what we should be teaching and talk to industry. And from the start, we thought 
if we're going to have a program, it needs to be accredited. So who accredits? At that stage, no one did. So we talked to Building Smart Australasia and they came on board with us and were instrumental in introducing us to anybody who was everybody, everybody who was anybody in the industry. And we went around and we talked to people, Brian McSweeney, Andrew Kurthois, uh, Dave Mitchell, yourself, all these sort of people. And we got a really solid view of what industry wanted. And they told us exactly what the academic side of people were going to have a heart attack with and we had to nurture that through. For example, one, we don't want people away from work for more than three days a week. So whatever subjects you do, three days a week, that's it. Secondly, there's no one wants to spend another three or four nights working on assignment after they've had that much time away from work in a bitty time. So therefore your assignment and your assessment needs to be within that three days. Finally, they do not want to have to come back in three months' time or two weeks' time or eight weeks' time and do their final exam. The exam also has to be within. Now, we managed getting that through the university and that, I think, was one of the best achievements we've ever had or I've ever had at university because that's just against every rule in the uni. But we got it through. The way we got it through is micro-credentials were becoming very popular. So a micro-credential is a small unit of learning that could earn you a half a point or one point towards a degree or towards CPD or whatever. It doesn't have an AQF rating as yet as a separate thing, but it's on the process of it's being discussed. So we said, let's make a micro-credential at the highest level they're likely to rate them at, which is five points, and let's do it at AQF 8, which is postgraduate certificate level. And if we put eight of those three-day things together, it gives us 24 days, which equals four by six days of a normal course, which is a postgrad certificate. So therefore, we've got the first component of our program put together, not just as a postgrad certificate where you do four, six-day subjects and you do them in one semester, but you do eight three-day subjects. And if you like, you can spread them out over two or three years. We don't really care. You do them when you want to, in the order you want to. And we focus on the main technologies of BIM for five of them. And the others, we thought, where are the shortcomings? And we found, well, you need introductory subjects. And that came from Building Smart. And the industry told us that. Because people need to get an overview of what it's all about because they don't understand it. And the second thing was, and this came from a discussion with David Mitchell. He was president of Building Smart at the time. I said, as a contracts background guy, if we get all the people in the room earlier, which was what we were talking about, and everybody's adding into this one model, what about IP? Is that going to be a problem? And he said, well, that's one of the potential nightmares. So we created a subject to deal with IP rights in the design of BIM, and we've got an expert lawyer teaching that. So everything we did was what does industry want, how can we provide it, but still maintain the rigour that you mentioned required by the university and the accreditation through the government that we get from TEXA and also the accreditation we get from the institution. So obviously Bond has successfully been able to build this structure and essentially you're kind of like a, we, we won't call it a needle in a haystack, but in terms of solving the, the, the national problem that we have of education, how can we expand off the back of what Bond has done as a, as a country as an industry and provide a, a, a platform or a framework for all of industry to be able to benefit from. It's 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 a you know it's it's good for people here in Brisbane and obviously through COVID you ha- you're able to run your courses online, which isn't ideal for any education scenario because it's always better to do it face to face. How can we expand this? So how how can we make this better? Like it's that's that it's almost like a utopian kind of feel, I guess. 
Let's come at it from three angles. First of all, a minor correction. We actually decided rather than try and teach BIM online, <laughs> Not we just to. closed it down during COVID, which is what we did. And then we have had one multimodal version. We had a student in Melbourne who couldn't, <laughs> wasn't. Melbourne. Well, locked lock down, yeah. Lockout, locked down. Uh, and that worked okay. But I think if we had a lot of them everywhere and if they weren't as bright as that student was, it may be difficult. Yep. So uh, to be fair, we didn't really deal with it in COVID by continuing to teach. So that's one point. The second point is how do you get it out to education? Um, I think it's fair to say we don't know what it is. I'm being very open and honest here. But the majority of people who go through our program are students who have gone through the university doing another course and then they decide to do BIM before they leave. And the reason for that is they see that just about every other student who does BIM is employed within days or weeks of finishing or actually during their course. And they think, I want to be in the industry and I want to get into the tech end of the industry and I want to be sure I have a job, so I'm going to do this extra course. Now, there's a bit of an advantage that we, we, for overseas students who want to work in the country, we have to run what we call a professional course. They have to do 20 weeks extra over a local uh, for various reasons, basically because we do three trimesters a year and the government sets the duration of a master's course required to get a visa in months, not in semesters. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to change their rules just for bond. So we have to do a 20-week extra thing, and we normally do that as an internship or on-site training. But we also have been uh, got advice from our immigration lawyers that if they do the BIM program, which is only one and a half semesters longer than the professional 20-week thing they have to do, so you know, for one and a half semesters, you end up with two master's degrees. So the majority of people who have been through have actually been students from Bond. And yet our entire modus operandi and putting together was to attract people from industry because of the government growing need and growing demand for BIM to be on every project. Now, We've seen a change in the government, I believe. That's another factor. Andrew Curthoys is gone. The people who are backing him up are being put onto other roles. The government doesn't seem to be anywhere near as active as they used to be in pushing it. I'm sure they will continue to push it. But I see that private industry is going to have to take the lead. And my main answer to your question, that's two peripheral things we've just talked about. My main answer is there's some really weird stuff going on in the industry. And this is a great opportunity for anybody related in BIM to get together and do something about it. Crazy point number one. If you're doing a large project today, and I've been through this talking to industry a number of times, the banks will say, do not come to us to talk about funding till you've got a contract. And guess what the contracts are saying? The contractors are saying, don't come to us to talk about a contract until you've got bank funding. That's catch 22. No project's ever going to get off the ground. So what that's done is it's opened the gate for funding to come in from offshore superannuation funds. And I know a couple of major projects. I'm talking construction prices getting close to $200 million on the coast that have been funded by offshore super funds simply because of this craziness in that particular area. And these people are taking on an exchange rate risk in doing that. They're limiting it, but they're taking it on. So that's a craziness that has to go. But no one's going to talk to the banks in it. Well, we've only got four major banks and they're running, ruling the roost. Point number two, 
As a quantity surveyor, I'm well aware of the fluctuations in pricing. Now, if you take a standard economic cycle, like a waveform, the only time that lump sum tendering is likely to work, just logically and statistically, is where the waveform is at or about the x-axis, about to cross it. Just when it kicks off, when it comes back down, just under it, and as it comes back up towards it. At the peak, they're going to price whatever they darn want and profit gouge. They don't want to say no, so they put it in a big price, and if they're lucky enough to get it, bonus. And down the bottom, they're going to buy the projects and they're going to do everything they do to build up the minus 1% or minus half or half percent that they bid on in profit. They're going to try and build up to 5%. So you get claims engineering and a nightmare. Now, that sort of scenario when you're talking major complex project is absolute stupidity in my, my view. In my last 15 years of practice, including the Olympic Stadium, which is 670 million bucks, I talked the owners every time into negotiated contracts. Now, if you trust your quantity surveyor, if you've got a couple of quantity surveyors or if you trust your quantity surveyor and they give you a price and they say that's a reasonable price and if it comes in close to that price, why the hell do you care if it's $5 million in $300 million higher than what you might have got with a tender when there's a great probability that at the end of the end of the construction period that started with a tender, that $5 million saving has turned it into a $10 million loss because of all the claims, engineering, et cetera, that might happen. So that's the second point. My third point is we have an industry that's incredibly technically proficient and advanced. It really is. We build as good as anybody else in the world. I took a bunch of students to a site the other day, GCB Constructions, never been on one of their sites before. One of the best managed sites I've ever seen. I've never, it was just like the perfect site to take students on. It was like, this is how you do it, right? So we've got technically outstanding people. My problem is that our advancement doesn't extend to culture. My own research was on stress in the construction industry and I started that off because Griffith did some work in 2009 and found that when safety incidents on sites were going down to nothing uh, all over the world, stress in every industry except construction was climbing but not in construction, it flatlined. And yet while there's flatline reports of time off work because of stress in construction, you had 238% chance of committing suicide if you're a male under 30 working in construction because the industry says this is a tough industry, you don't complain if you've got problems, you don't share it. Now, Mates in Construction has done a lot to fix that. In my world, I looked at the professional side of things and the professional side came because people bid too skinny, then they put their very best people onto the jobs to try and regain the profit. Something's going wrong somewhere else. Those same people go somewhere else. They want to leave because their family's putting pressure on because they never see them. They go to the boss and the boss said, we'll give an extra 20 or 30 grand. All of a sudden, the kids are going to private schools so they got a new car or a holiday so they continue it. It doesn't fix the problem. It just puts it down the track for a year or two. And that problem of overstressing people is getting worse and worse in the industry. So the banking problem, the health problem because of the tendering, how does BIM help that? If we want to build things properly today and we want to get the engineering side right for environment and the operational side right for the environment and various other ESG components, as many people as possible who are going to be involved in designing, building and running that need to be in upfront. 
and it needs to be an integrated project delivery and they all need to be involved with the BIM project and the condition of being involved is they need to be educated in it. They do not get their education by following on from other experts in the room. You get your education to earn the right to be in the room. Now, to get to that stage, we've got to get our developers to the point where they're prepared to share risk and not, not dump it down the line to the builders. We've got to get the banks to understand developers are going to do that. And we've got developers to understand that when you're not in a tendering place, you don't gouge people. That's the big call. And I reckon that we need to start some sort of group to lead that because the government isn't going to, I don't believe, at the moment. They need to be part of it. And if anybody listening to this podcast is interested, I can tell you now, we at Bond University are happy to provide the premises and the leadership to kick that off. But this industry needs change and BIM is the catalyst for that change and now is the perfect time to do it as we go into a phase of massive construction and development expansion in this region. I'm off the pulpit now. No, well, the problem the problem with that is is that you're almost once again we, we always talk about utopia, right? And we've got a big enough challenge as it is right now trying to train our own industry, let alone developers and uh, and financiers. You know that's that's next level stuff. Despite some of the exciting things, I guess, or the conversations that were happening a couple of months ago when we had some visitors from the UK from the Centre of Digital Built Britain, but the thing is is that we talk about cultural issues and, and the like, but one of the things that I often think about is that most business owners will think that they can get away with just employing people. Like you originally set your, your bond course up for people that are professional already in industry, mm. but your results so far have been people that are wanting to upskill, which is another gap we have been talking about off, mm. offline out of this Probably, with, yeah. with other um, initiatives around possibilities of bringing Built Academy down to Australia. Mm. But how do you think, you know, we, we, you've, you've made a very broad statement about bringing everyone on board, about changing the way in which projects are delivered. But do you think there's a way in which we can actually bring our business owners to the table instead of just thinking they can employ people with those skills? Well, unfortunately, we're going the wrong way because I've spoken to a couple of developers recently because of my industry engagement role at Bond. Yep. And they've tried the direct negotiation thing. One group had a $120 million estimate by a very, very well-known quantity surveying firm and highly reputed, and their price eventually came in at 165 And I was the idiot who suggested to them that they negotiate a contract rather than call tenders, and that didn't work out too well for them. Now, exactly the same group is about to go into another project, and six months after being 25% minutes over budget or more than 25, 30% over budget, they're now pricing another project on the Gold Coast and that's come in another 28% higher than that again because of the one-on-one. And they just said, we're, ne- we're never going to do a one-on-one. And I said to a representative of that builder, I said, you've just shot yourself in the foot because it's not just them, it's everybody else. Why didn't you go in at a normal profit level and they just shrugged their shoulders and got to make hay while the sun shines. That school thinking has got to go. The Brits did a pretty good job of it with managing contracting and things like that. We tried managing contractors out here, managing contractor system. Who did the managing contractors? Standard contractors. How do they do it? The same way as they did anything else and making profit. There seems to be a blockage about stepping outside and looking at what's a reasonable profit to be made and a reasonable risk to be taken so we share the risk and share the profit differently. But someone's got to start the discussion because we learn around here. You look at all the topics where it's worked, uh, you know, uh, 
in America, the 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 racist thing, and here as well, the racial uh, discrimination, feminism, um, ESG, uh, environmental issues. You get the conversation rolling with some decent white papers. People start listening because the banks might be. Um, leading with demands are a little bit difficult to meet in terms of the contracts and all that. And they're trying to protect the risk for their people. But if there's a counter-argument put out into the platform through podcasts, through discussion, that said, but by doing that, you're preventing a whole stack of things happening that might contribute to what your shareholders want in other areas, such as environmental things, such as social things, such as operational efficiencies in buildings and all this in terms of environment and other things, then the banks may start to listen. But if we sit back waiting for it to happen organically without being part of the change, it's not going to happen. And universities should be part of the leadership. And But we can't lead, um, you know, someone, a, a leader who's trying to lead without another group wanting to follow. That's just someone going for a stroll. Um, we need to put a team together to make this happen. And that's a big challenge because I think that uh, your one comment there about leader with, with, without people following in many ways is I think some of the biggest challenges that we are facing uh, with the, why people aren't taking on education when they should be. Well, and we did have that start, Andrew, and we keep mentioning the stars of BIM in this place and a lot of them in this room, but I don't think he'll mind me saying it. We all know that Andrew Kerthel is a shining light in the BIM and getting it to where it was in Australia. Well, when he was with the government, he cooked off the, what was it, Rosemary, the BIM education uh, round table and that everybody who was offering any BIM education at any level, that was the greatest idea under the sun. I met twice and Andrew was gone and that was the end of it, never went anywhere. Well, well, there was a few things from that. So I want to I want to go back onto two points with that round table. So I was lucky enough to represent an uh, industry body on that table as well. But let's first talk about one of the comments made by one of the t- attendees in, in terms of about culture and the challenges of culture. And I don't want to name names because I think that's probably not appropriate. But one of the comments that were made at that table was around the, the issues with subcontractors on site. And the comment made was as subcontractors will not stop work to take on education unless it becomes a required ticket for them to actually be on site. Mm. So how can we change, like the psychology background, right, that, you, that you've got, I think that's really kind of pertinent to this conversation around education, right? So we have a situation where you have the, the culture of a subcontractor that, thinks that, no, I'm not going to – I don't need any more training unless I, it's mandated against me. We have business owners that go, I'm just going to farm it out. You know, are we talking – and the other thing that you raise about the financiers, you know, and some of the com- other conversations we've had recently about, well, COVID made so many changes to the way in which we live. Mm-hmm. Before COVID, no one would really be interested in doing uh, online it would always be, I have to meet face-to-face. You jump on a plane just to meet for someone for an hour and you'd spend a whole day in transit. Sustainability, you know, what is it going to be? What's what's the magic catalyst that's going to kind of force people to realise that this education thing is a really important thing? And that's one kind of point. <laughs> but then the second one I kind of think about is from a cultural standpoint, let's let's kind of think about the biggest issue around change management, Right. And I know personally many years ago with some implementation work I did back in 2013, I missed that concept altogether because I wasn't trained in it. Is that the missing piece of the puzzle, the sense of 
we need to start to educate our whole sector around this concept of change management so that then once we have that little bit of understanding about if we just walk down this line together, you know, none of this pushing people or just running off into the distance by yourself, is that what's going to, you know, is do we need something like that to potentially change the way in which we move forward and then people recognise education is actually the way forward? Yeah, that's an interesting um, brace of questions. <laughs> the first one really goes to motivational theory and motivational theory, I guess, can be summarised down to P.T. Young's hedonic theory, the pain or gain theory. So the pain theory is get so bad that you have to do something. You, you get overweight, so overweight that you decide you have to go into the doctor and the doctor says you'll have a heart attack, frightens the hell out of you. So you eat healthy for a while until your belt's a bit loose, but then you stop. Uh, so the pain theory is very good for kicking off something, but it's not good for continuing. And what you're really talking about here is continuing change, continuing yep. education, and how do you get that embedded into people. So I'll come to that secondary. The second part of the hedonic theory of motivation is the game theory, and that is you don't need to kick them off because the goal at the end of the line is so attractive mm. that they're self-oriented to it. So somewhere along the line we have to make, I believe, the pain theory is useful in places, but I think the game the answer. is a much better one to keep people engaged with. So I think somehow we've got to make it attractive for people to want to do it. And you can kind of mix the two a little bit, I guess. You could kind of have a rule. For example, uh, if, if uh, a developer says to me, what the hell can I do to be getting into an ESG path as quickly as possible, the first thing I would say is the easiest way to do it is employ architects who are already on that path, employ engineers who are already yep. on that path, set a standard that you have for your buildings that they're going to deliver uh, to the environmental standards and the uh, UN standards as much as they possibly can, both operationally and in embedded carbon and all that sort of stuff. Part of that, and that's starting to happen because the easiest way for the developer to get the brownie points is to employ contractors and architects and engineers, consultants generally, who are going to help them get them without them doing anything other than ask for people who understand those requirements and deliver on them. So it's only one step further to say to the builders, we expect this from you as much as we expect it from the architects and engineers and we expect you to expect it from your subcontractors. So as soon as we do that... It might sound like a punitive pushing way of doing it, but we're not actually saying if you don't do it, you won't get the job. What we're actually saying is those who do do it will get the job. Now, that subtle difference in neurosemantic language makes all the difference in how it's accepted within the industry. It becomes a carrot rather than a stick, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. and it's, it's, it's so hard because you keep sitting there and thinking how can we do this? You know, we attend so many of these events the events that are attended, as we've talked about, are attended by the people in the field that are the experts and then we're thinking falsely that industry is actually there and it's only when you then step out of these rooms that you see the the chasm and how far behind the rest of industry is. But not even that. If you went to everybody attending this function now... If the people running the other programs ask us questions about their program, we probably wouldn't get 25% of them right. Some of us might. But if we asked them about BIM and its broader application, the majority of them wouldn't understand. As I said before, it's the people who are already experts and understand who go to the lectures about their area of expertise to try and build it up and make sure they're on the right track as opposed to those who need to know 
Look, I couldn't summarise it better than Neil deGrasse Tyson, the American um, physicist, who said there are too many people in the world who know enough to think they're right but not enough to know they're wrong. Uh, and what we have here is we've got people in this room who know enough to know when they're wrong because they know so much about the topic. Uh, but the others believe or feel comfortable in a level so they don't have interest in these sort of topics. And this is why the podcast is better than conference in a way because it gets out to people who may be at the conference in a different room. That's a challenge because we have, you know, people probably won't listen to it if they think they know already and they yeah. don't know. And the, and, the, and the challenge is, is we see those people in leadership positions driving projects, which is a very scary scenario. So, Alan, six years ago, and this is one thing that we've talked about previously as well, we had the ACIF APCC BIM Knowledge and Skills Framework. Now, that was released six years ago. And recently we have seen another document that was created by ABAF about just specifically focusing on university skills. Personally, I kind of I don't mind it as a document. It's a lot to digest. Uh, I'm really keen on your views. We talked about it as being it, it can be overwhelming. The, the positive of that document is it covers off on so many different roles in industry. And the first kind of comment about that is is that what are your thoughts? And, and well, actually, I keep dragging on about this because I think it's really important. How do we deal with the the leaders? How do we provide an education process for our leaders within business that's separate from the the nuts and bolts? Now, I know that there's a really strong need for the nuts and bolts people to be able to do that delivery side. But from a leadership, from a strategy side, how can we address that? That's a fascinating question. In the days when project management was just becoming a big topic in Australia back around 73, 74, I guess, we had exactly the same problem. We had people who were learning the technical skills, but we didn't have people who were leaders of those who had the technical skills, if you like. Uh, so we didn't have managers of the project managers. And at the top level, no one had a clue what project management was because matrix management, which introduced it across all institutions, didn't really happen substantially until after 1988. Um, up until 1988, only 8% of companies outside of oil and gas and construction had project managers. Um, so it took a while for it to get going. So there are two levels of leadership education we need. One is leadership of the BIM process, putting in the BIM context. Now, strangely, at Bond, we don't set out to make everybody an individual technical expert in every area that they study. We want them to know enough about it and to be good enough about it to be proficient when they go somewhere and be able to learn quickly. But more importantly, we're trying to produce people who will be the coordinators and managers of projects delivered under designed and delivered under BIM process. So that's the role we're more than anything trying to fill. The level that I think we miss out on, we've talked about it internally and I've yeah. told you this and that's probably what driven the question, I guess, and we need to look at it internally, is somewhere along the line we need to educate the managers of companies, of banks, of uh, developers, of Superannuation consultancy, yeah. every level. Yeah. Without, we need to educate them on what is required on BIM in order to get the benefits from it. So we actually remove that 
thinking that if I don't have to do it, I'm not going to do it. It's got to be like I have to do it. It's, it's If I want to survive and want to thrive in any industry or any consultancy within the construction and development industry, this is part of the way forward. Now, and before that's we, where we probably need to lift our game a bit and do something on that. Well, the thing is, is through my research, there's actually not one education provider that I've found in Australia that has a focus on that ownership. You know, at least to hear that. <laughs> no, no, look, to be honest, well, I don't think ours will be a degree or anything like that, or even. A, but if anything, it would be webinars, um, podcasts that we'll put together. Yeah. It will be, I think, educating a people at that level. They don't have the time to be no. doing those sort of things. It'll be this sort of education. It'll be me talking to webinars, going to industry groups, um, our team doing that so that they get the education they need, which will encourage the education of their people within our university and other institutions. I think it might drive change, which is more important. Yeah, indeed. Now, we've gone on for quite some time. And I am acknowledging the fact that we are recording this is in a, in a session timed that we can't overrun too far. But uh, now's our time for our our audience questions, and we're not going to have too many. I don't think everyone's a little bit quiet this morning. But I definitely do have a uh, an audience member here from uh, Chris Rosell, managing director of Dorofus in Australia. So take it away, Chris. Thanks, Nathan, and hi, Alan. Nice to meet you. Hey, um, uh, you've probably heard of uh, Daniel Pink before, maybe, maybe, maybe not. I uh, know a Pink South African guy, but I don't know whether his first name is Daniel. <laughs> you know? um, well, D D Daniel Pink's an author, uh, and he wrote this book called Drive uh, about what you know inherently motivates people. Yeah, and Drive, I know about. Yeah. He he talks about you know the carrot and the stick approach as you were talking about, but also um, I guess he sort of posits an, an interesting concept through, I think he was doing some consultancy work with a few companies, maybe even actually Atlassian here uh, from Australia. And um, this idea of actually giving people an allowance, if you will, uh, in their daily working, daily working week to just spend it on whatever they wanted to do. You know, they could actually have as much, I think it was 20% he, he quoted, you know, uh, companies were allowing people to just spend that on whatever it is you want to do. It doesn't have to be project related. Is that a time allowance or money allowance? Uh, time allowance, I think, yeah. yeah. And yeah, I just, I just wondered what, you, what your thoughts might be on that because I think, you know, there's, um, I totally with you on the carrot and the stick approach, you need both. Uh, and you need to obviously consider how you present that. But um, giving people absolute freedom, <laughs> what path do you think they might take in an educational sense? I like the idea of the freedom. Um, it's not a new concept. Anita Roderick did it with the body shop where she very quietly didn't go out and do it as a big advertising thing. She simply said to her people, you can have six days a year to go and do something that's a charitable thing. All you need to do, don't even have to tell me what it is. Just say you're going to do your community service. And some of them went and just worked in soup kitchens and others went and worked with various charities, etc. And eventually that leaked out. And that probably more than anything made the body shop as famous as it was. And yet she never intended it to be a marketing ploy. She got the benefit of it anyway. So I think there's a benefit in companies doing that from that angle, but I think it's even better if they do it without looking for that benefit, if the benefit just follows. My basic theory, because I used to do a lot of work in the corporate world on this motivation theory stuff, psych psychology of motivation, is that if you want people to look after your customers, then you look after the people. And I honestly believe that if you can give people an opportunity 
to contribute toward what their sense of purpose is, whatever it is in their mind, in their soul that they think they're here to do, um, so that they feel they're climbing up a ladder that's against the right wall and they're not doing something just to make money and slaving away. Anytime you give them an opportunity to be motivated in that sense, because most people don't feel they can contribute to the things that they most want to change in the world. It's just too big. But then take an example, a tsunami comes along and there's various funds raised. Everybody contributes a bit because they feel they want to help those who have been dispossessed by that natural tragedy and they feel they're contributing. So in a way, giving people a week, as Roderick did, to go and do that allowed them to have a sense of purpose and felt they were able to deliver on that within a corporate context. So that makes work more than just a place where you earn money. That makes work be a place where you can become what you aspire to be at the highest possible level. Now, does that work in direct transcription or translation across to a workplace with education? I think it would require another step. I think it would require a step that said, I'm going to give you 20% of your time a week to do exactly what you want. But the things we'd like to see you do would be something for the community or something in education which will help the company and in turn with the company making more profit because you've got that education, we will contribute to the community. But I think the more and more you can do things like that that hook into a person's sense of purpose rather than sense of having to be on the grindstone and earn money, that I can actually do something that contributes to something bigger than me, then I think that's a good thing to do. Chris, love that response just for those people that can't see uh, down the audio file. But, um, no, I think that's actually a really pertinent way to kind of close out today in terms of an aspiring finish. The the challenge we face will be is, you know, as you said, contractually, how can a practice or industry afford that at this point in time? And it might, it might be one of those incremental type things where we kind of approach things and go, well, you know, this is how we can do it. You know, maybe it's not twenty percent to start with. Maybe it's five percent. Well, that's where I kind of take issue with the ACCC sometimes because real estate agents can charge two and a half percent across a, you know the cost of a you know the cost of a sale of an asset, whereas uh, the architects and engineers and that and even contractors, if if there was a point, I think in Canada they actually have fixed fees for for architects at the moment. It's been there for a long time, but if they actually had fixed levels of something that provided a level playing field rather than price kind of, you know, as you said, everyone's kind of fighting over the top of one another. That's where I think indicated project insurance. I don't know if you've touched any of that in the UK, but has that made a difference? I guess maybe, but it's just one of those things. There's so many different levers that we've got to try and pull to try and make a difference. But it gets back to education. You started a conversation on education. We'll finish it on that. When you have developers who are screwing architects and consultants, uh, the end result, there has to be a second-rate service or a consultant going broke and they're not going to choose the latter, a second-rate service. And who's going to end up paying that in the long run? The very person who went for the second-rate service because yep. it's going to come in as variations and more costs down the track. It's not self-serving. It's self-destructive and it's very short-sighted and it comes from a lack of a broad mindset and a lack of education at the broader level. Now, obviously, I'm sitting here with you and you're representing Bond University Day and now's more like than ever the perfect time to close out the podcast. But we've talked about all the challenges today in education. What are the opportunities that, that people from industry or students that are looking at, at gaining a greater education right now, what are the opportunities that Bond actually offer students in, in this building space? 
If we talk broadly in our faculty alone, the Faculty of Society and Design, we've got approximately 80 different programs. Um, when I was thinking about education, I think you had a six or seven degree programs you could do and a number of you know, associate diploma type um, university institute of technology programs. If I got to third year of a six-year program and I didn't like it, you had to go back to start and scratch again. Today, students can swap and change around and get to do exactly what they want to do. The, the range is incredible. But to get to specifically to construction, things have gone a little differently. Instead of going to specific construction-related courses on a 1,000 different finite degrees, what we've tried to do is to put together a degree that covers all aspects of construction and can lead to multiple job roles, but there's sufficient grounding in there for them to hit the ground running, and it seems to be working pretty well. So our people can leave and get a job, and to be fair, other universities are doing similar. We like to think we do it better, and probably they do as well. But the student, certainly 17 years in a row, the only university rated with five-star ratings in the six areas of student satisfaction says that we're doing something right. But I'm not going to knock other universities. We need the competition to keep each other honest, etc. But we need people with multiple role opportunities because they start that course with an idea of what they want to do and at that age, a couple of years later, they could want something completely different. But they leave our courses, both undergrad and postgraduate, the capacity to do estimating, quantity surveying, contract administration, site work, um, construction management work, claims work, uh, project management in the construction world, site management in the construction world, and I could go on. So rather than do specific overly drawn out projects with a generation of young people who were brought up with two-minute music videos that changed every three seconds. We and all other universities have gone to give as much education as possible in as few as subjects, which gives them maximum scope to go out and try different career paths and still be very useful for those who employ them. And I still think that's the right way to go. Education in the future will change. I think micro-credentials, which you've mentioned, Stackable micro-credentials in 15 years' time will be a way to get a degree, but I think it's more likely to be a postgraduate degree for those who use continuing education. I think we still need to teach undergrads in a way that we know works rather than a way that they may want. And I know people like going around and picking up these digital credentials when they finish their, their micro-credentials. It's almost like playing Pokemon for some people. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's pretty crazy. But, Alan, thank you very much for your time today. Now, I have one final question I asked all of my guests and I'm, and I'm interested to hear your response on this one. What does BIM mean to you? Oh, I think I have to go back to... Look, first of all, a bit of honesty. I'm not a BIM person. You put me in yeah. front of a bit of software and I'd be buggered. I'm not... And that's uh, the point. That's the point. My, my thing is as a project manager and even the clinical side and the quantity surveying side, it's a skill set. All my three um, qualifications are around a skill set, and that is look at a set of data, question the hell out of it to find a way to put it together in a better way, or if it's not working, put it together in a way it does work, etc. So to me, kicking off BIM was an opportunity to lift bond um, to a level in construction education. It was already a leader but where it was guaranteed to remain a leader for quite some time. And winning the award for research into BIM or that um, uh, uh, 
the, special the, award we got. With Building Span International Awards, yep. International, yeah, Building Span International, which recognise the value of going to industry and being uh, described at the awards night that night as having um, being leaders in BIM education internationally, that showed us that we were where we wanted to be and I think it's important. But personally, outside the university, BIM is a catalyst that hasn't yet been activated to change the construction industry culture and way we operate for the better in the long term and we've got about a two or three year window of opportunity to make that happen and if we don't take it, we're nuts. But we can't do it ourselves. We're willing to provide the basis for it and the team of people who'd be engaged and I'm hoping that this podcast will lead to people making a few calls so we can kick things off. Maybe a couple of leading contractors, a couple of consultants, a couple of government people who can sit around and talk about how the hell can we use BIM in the way it produces the best results and change culture in the way we do it. Wonderful. Thanks a lot, Alan. Thanks for having me, man. Now, for more information on Alan and Bond University, please head over to the podcast section of the SKUD website for further reading. Now, look forward to sharing our po- next podcast. I look forward to sharing our next podcast with you in a fortnight's time. Until then, good luck with your digital transition, powered by Bond University's Building Information Modelling Program. Digital transition.